We told you last week about a film which opened nationwide Friday. Our media correspondent Gary Chu saw the Sacramento advanced screening of Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, and gave it a rave review. The Week magazine now concurs, giving it four stars. And so did my producer and I after viewing it over the weekend. This is an excellent documentary based on the book of the same name by Bethany McLean and Peter Elkin of Fortune magazine. A major reason why this is a must-see film is that its director was Alexander Gibney. Mr. Gibney previously produced the well-regarded documentary The Trials of Henry Kissinger, which, by the way, we recommended to you back in 2002. Alexander Gibney's other fine work has included an eight-hour documentary series, The Fifties, based on the book by David Halberstam, a six-part documentary, The Sexual Century, and The Blues, a series for PBS on blues music. We're very pleased to have him join us by phone from New York. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Alexander Gibney. Excellent. All right. I'd like to start with a quote from uh, a review in the San Jose Mercury News. Bruce Newman noted that in the film you show a clip of Alan Greenspan getting the Enron Prize for Public Service. Newman notes this is sort of like receiving the Banker of the Year Award from robber Willie Sutton. (laughs) Yeah, that was a sort of delicious moment in the film, both because Alan Greenspan gets the Enron Prize, and you could, I mean, it lets us remember how respectable Enron was at one time. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, this is a guy, Alan Greenspan, who in my view was so greatly responsible for pumping up the boom, then, you know, quickly apologizing for it later. But that's another story in another film. The, the point of the irony in this film was that, uh, that Ken Lay is giving him the Enron Prize with Jim Baker looking on, I should add. Right. I forgot that part. You make effective use of dark humor throughout the film. Um, when Jeffrey Skilling testified before Congress, the audience that I saw it with was laughing. Could you comment on using humor to sharpen a serious documentary? Well, I think there's a difference always between somber and serious. I think you can be funny and deadly serious at the same time. In fact, sometimes I think if you're not, you're missing the human dimension to a story. The fact was there was much about Enron that was was frankly ridiculous. And so over the top, you have to laugh or you're going to cry. So uh, I approached it with very much that in mind. And there was a tone I wanted to adopt for the film that was very much like that in Times and Bethany and Peter's book which was a sense of black comedy, which to me is comedy with an undercurrent of moral outrage. And that's what I found in the songs of Tom Waits. A lot of times I use that ironic touch. You know, the the music for me was a cue to people that there was, you know, a point of view here, even though I try to let a lot of the material speak for itself. But there is certainly a point of view, and the music and and other juxtapositions allow me to engage my own humor and point of view toward the material. One of the most remarkable scenes I've seen in any documentary was this footage you obtained somewhere of an Enron self-spoofing video that shows Jeffrey Skilling openly mocking himself about this marketing scheme to inflate profits. Yeah, that was a real stunner. I mean, the fact was that this is a clip that we have in the film where Jeffrey Skilling makes fun of uh, an accounting method called mark-to-market accounting, which allowed Enron to book extraordinary profits, even though very little cash is coming in the door. It was approved by the SEC and Arthur Anderson. Why they did it and how they did it is a long story, but it's uh, it's astounding that they did. But Skilling clearly knew that he had put one over on them, and he, he does a skit in which he makes fun of that whole thing. It's staggering. The fact was, though, that Enron did lots of skits. Many of them are in the hands of the Department of Justice now, and hopefully we'll get them at some later date. But many of them also, like this one, commented or directly satirized the various scams that they were pulling. 
one gathers there were quite a few people you had working behind the scenes uh, for you that didn't appear on screen. Someone in Enron, I guess, was supplier of that. There were different ways that we got a lot of the material. There's a lot of inside material in the, in the film, and we got it different ways. I mean, House and Senate uh, investigating committees, disgruntled employees, anonymous sources, and the audio tapes of the Enron traders, which are of particular interest to the people in California. We got those from a small public utility in Washington State that publicized them as part of a lawsuit with Enron. You said at one point that, um, that you sort of put this film together like a, uh, like a heist film and that those audio tapes really give you this, this crime drama aspect of things. That's right, because you, you're really in the seat. I mean, even the music at that point in the film underscores that feeling. It's as though you're in the getaway car. Yeah. You pull up to the bank, you take the money out of the bank, and then you, you, you watch the police in your rearview mirror as you, as you get away. That's what those audio tapes are like, as, as we hear these Enron traders basically shutting down the California grid in order to create uh, higher prices and, and much higher profits for themselves. And Enron wasn't alone. They were in, you know, joined by many other companies at the time. My understanding is these were routine tapes that they record to make sure that a transaction is, is authenticated, but that it was the comments the guys were adding that made it so unbelievable. Yes. In addition to the transactions themselves, I mean, you, you literally hear... Enron traders calling up power plants, asking them to shut down, and then the power plants, which were actually not owned by Enron, exceeding rather dutifully. One thing I wanted to clear up with you, people, this verb always circulates uh, in the press reports about Enron then and now, and it's, it's brought up in your film. They refer to what happened here in California back in 2001 as gaming or gaming the system. Can you explain really what, what, was really, what that really meant? What it meant was the Enron uh, traders took a very careful look at California's deregulation system. And it wasn't an utterly deregulated market. There were many rules and restrictions. And in fact, you know, Enron opposed many of those rules and restrictions and often commented to people that they felt California had insufficiently uh, deregulated their market. But the, Cali but the Enron traders looked very carefully at the rules, which is something that people in Enron did in general throughout Enron's experience. It wasn't so much about people breaking the rules as finding innovative loopholes or ways of gaming the rules. That is to say, playing a game with them and to turn them in on themselves. So, for example, in the case of uh, California, they learned that you can actually be paid for relieving congestion along electrical lines. Well, no sooner did they learn that, that Enron got busy at creating all sorts of congestion and then was paid by the state to alleviate the problem they caused in the first place. But at least for a time, that was according to the rules laid out by California. So for, for a while, anyway, what, what Enron did in California was often legal, but highly immoral. Now, they went on to do some things that were illegal, because three uh, traders have since pled guilty to wire fraud, uh, ostensibly for faking congestion where there, uh, where there was none. You've cleared up a little mystery for me. I was reading a rather critical evaluation of the movie where someone was saying, well, what about the fact that they actually were relieving congestion? Well, you've explained why they were doing that. They were getting paid to do that. They were getting paid to relieve congestion, and sometimes they created the congestion in the first place. The fact was, you know, it was all about playing little games with the system. Very early on, a guy named Tim Belden, who was mentioned in the film, played a little experiment on the California system. And, and what he did was... He, he took an order to deliver electricity, and it was a lot of electricity, and he purposefully put it through a very narrow intertie called Silver Peak in Nevada. It's a tiny, it's in a ghost town. Now, it was very clear the next day that uh, to the, the ISO, the schedule in 
California, that there was no way that, that the power that Enron intended to send, which would reach its destination, because it would have to flow through too small a pipe. Right. So they pointed this out to Enron, and, and Enron said, yeah, it kind of makes your eyes pop, doesn't it? <laughs> By which Tim Belden meant, too bad, sucker, you lose, and you've got to pay us for relieving this congestion, number one, and number two, you probably have to pay us for the energy we promised to supply you. It's not our fault. We sent it through a place that uh, wouldn't deliver you the electricity. Now, they had an investigation into that incident. It cost the state of California $7 million. Enron paid a fine of $25,000. But in the wake of that incident, you would think, okay, Tim Belden now is going to be reprimanded by his superiors. No, he was promoted. Wow. Isn't it fair to say that uh, I was reading about this and that Texas uh, was talking about how they were not going to deregulate the way California did because anybody could see in a short period of time the loopholes that were that were there. Weren't a lot of these there at, at sort of Enron's behest and, and other energy traders? Well, that's hard to say. It is very true that Enron pushed very hard for California to deregulate. But I think it's also fair to say that, that, en- that California didn't deregulate in the way that Enron had suggested. So perhaps they were miffed that California didn't follow their plan, and that's why they decided to take down the grid. Yeah. You know, sometimes people can get annoyed when, you know, you don't go along with their plan. It's a little bit like this. Imagine if I were to flip it on its head and say, okay, let's say you see a guy wobbling down the street who's very well-dressed but clearly drunk, and a huge billfold is sticking out of his pocket. Is it your duty... As, a, as one who believes in the free market, to beat him up and steal his money. <laughs> it's a good metaphor. Estimates in, the lo- in California are, I've heard, it's, it's, it's definite there's at least $9 billion in overcharges. Some people say $30 billion. I've heard up to $70 billion lost to the California economy. I've read that Governor Schwarzenegger, according to some investigative reporters, pulled California from subsequent lawsuits aimed at recovering that $9 billion in overcharges. Do you know, do you know if that's correct? I don't know. Uh, okay. that's, uh, I've heard that very same thing, but I don't know for sure. All right, we'll, we'll look into that. You, you humanized your film by focusing in on the three individuals who ran the operations at Enron, Kenneth Lay, Jeffrey Skilling, Andrew Fastow, and you outlined how critical each was to what happened. Um, Ken Lay now claims he didn't know what crooked dealings were going on in the company, and I'd like to get your reaction to the following uh, uh, quote from The Economist magazine's review of Kurt Eichenwald's Conspiracy of Fools. Referring to Kenny Lay, the magazine said, right up to the end, he's described as failing to grasp the severity of the problems facing the company. Mr. Skilling, too, seems entirely unaware of the crimes being orchestrated just below him in the corporate hierarchy. His decision to quit comes across as unrelated to fraud. Your, your comments on that? I find it ridiculous. I don't know which is worse, whether they did know that the fraud was occurring or whether they didn't. The fact is, if you're Ken Lay and you've received $300 million in stock options and compensation for being what some people were calling the, one of the smartest guys in the room, and then you're completely unaware of what your chief financial officer is doing, I don't think so. Now, it's possible, but then what was he doing getting all that money? Number two, I tend to take a slightly different view in this sense. Uh, I did, once did a film about uh, Henry Kissinger, and there was an incident in which a chief of staff of the Chilean army was murdered by the CIA or by CIA associates in Chile. Mm-hmm. Now, Kissinger didn't tell the people what gun to use. 
He didn't tell them how to commit the murder. Uh, he simply made it known that this guy was inimical to uh, American interests. And people, uh, as part of this Track 2 program, simply took care of business. In the case of Enron, you have Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling, both of whom were on the board and who voted to suspend Enron's code of ethics and allow Andy Fastow, as the CFO of Enron, to essentially create a new company that would do deals with himself. Why? Because that company would take all this debt that was on Enron's balance sheet and make it appear to be cash coming in the door. That was the function of it, so that people on the outside wouldn't get scared at this ballooning debt at Enron. And you can't tell me that um, they didn't know what was going on. Now, they may not have known about each individual transaction, and they probably didn't know the extent to which Fastow was stealing from the company himself. But the fact was, let's say you take Andy Fastow's $45 million that he stole from the company, and you put it back in Enron's treasury. Does Enron survive? No. Right. Well, you had some insiders talking about how, how sort of the, the wink, the wink and the nudge going on to Andy Fastow and what he was up to, knowing he would be up to mischief. And also, I guess that previous event where Kenneth Lay had uh, had looked looked away while a trader was um, gambling, basically with money. Well, I put in that incident that you refer to. It's called the Valhalla incident. Yeah. It seems to me Enron's original sin. It was a moment where where Ken Lay or people below Ken Lay caught some traders who were making a lot of money for Enron, but caught them putting money directly into their own personal bank accounts. They were brought down to Houston, and it was also proven that they had falsified bank records in order to get away with this scam. Well, Ken Lay probably should have fired them on the spot, but he chose not to. Why? Because they were making too much money for the company. Well, so he sends them back up to Valhalla, New York, and actually increases their trading limits. Now, he did put in some controls, but he increases their trading limits. Very soon after, they almost brought down the company by making reckless trades. So it was, it was a, a, a microcosm what was going to happen later, but more important, it testified to the notion that when it came to making money, Ken Lay was willing to accept just about everything or anything. And that sends a message throughout the company about what kind of behavior will or won't be tolerated. And over time, I think, you know, people like Andy Fastow got that message. You make much of the fact that uh, that Skilling and others were really basically in Lay, were basically gamblers who had a, had a run of good luck for a while, but it portraying themselves as the smartest guys in the room, uh, it may be sort of, I, I guess, like portraying the guy who went up to, to Reno and had a winning weekend as a financial genius because he's obviously doing the right thing. That's right. Well, I think that's true to some extent. I, <clears throat> I think a more textured view would acknowledge that, uh, that Skilling, who was a real gambler, nevertheless did have some very good ideas, but he was all about the idea. He, he was a designer of ditches, not a digger of ditches. And he had very little patience with the execution of these grand ideas. So over time, um, in order to keep pumping their stock price up, he would emphasize the ideas, but be very impatient about their execution. So that there was a greater and greater gap between what he said Enron was doing and what Enron was actually doing. Even more important, or, or worse for them, was that uh, because of this accounting thing that we talked about earlier, there was a growing, growing gap between the amount of cash that was coming in the door and the amount of stated profits at the company. And so their debt was ballooning, and they were increasingly running out of time uh, in order to come up with 
quick solutions to these big ideas that Skilling had. And this is what pushed them over the line into fraud, because they had to keep claiming that they were really up and running with, say, video on demand, which they weren't. And it's the subject of the trial right now in Houston. Or that thriving, um, you know, business all over the world, which they didn't. Mm-hmm. So um, they, they pushed themselves to the point of desperation. And once they started to cheat a little bit, they had to cheat a little bit more to make up for the old cheating. So Skilling and Lay may now look back, and certainly the focus of their criminal case will probably be that transaction by transaction, everything we did was appropriate. That may or may not be so. We'll have to see what happens in the courts. But one thing is sure, if you step back and looked at the spirit of the law, they violated it shamelessly. What your film shows in, in some detail that the company, for however it started out, is at some point basically a Ponzi scheme, surviving on borrowed money based on some some dubious premises. But Fortune magazine had voted Enron the most innovative company in America six years running. Finally, Bethany McLean's article questions what the company was up to. It gets others asking if maybe the emperor has no clothes. But why did it, why did it all take so long? It's a good question. Uh, I think one of the reasons was that these guys were, were wonderful pitchmen. And also, they were preaching a religion that everybody wanted to believe in. Everybody in the Internet boom era wanted to believe that we were just going to keep money, keep making money forever, and that stocks were just going to keep going up and up and up, and that we could continue to defy the laws of financial gravity. Also, I think Enron preached this code, this kind of law of the jungle code that said, so long as there are no rules in capitalism, every, everyone's going to work out great, and the best possible social result will occur. Well, we now know that's not the case, and, and the classic example is California. Um, so I think that that was, um, that was the problem. These guys were preaching to a choir right. uh, that, that really wanted to sing along to the, to the Enron hymn book. Right. And, the, and the proof of that is that Enron couldn't have done what it did particularly with all these crooked transactions, if it weren't for the help of America's major investment banks, Citicorp, J.P. Morgan Chase, C.S. First Boston, Merrill Lynch. And you see the emails going back and forth between these bankers. We show some of them in the film where the bankers are basically saying, look, these deals are sleazy, but we're going to do them anyway because the money's too good. Is your sense that this has been reformed in the wake of Enron and WorldCom and others uh, misrepresenting their quarterly profits? I think there have been legislative reforms. Sarbanes-Oxley is a law that has been passed (laughs) that demands much more from uh, CEOs in terms of signing off on their own financial documents and also outside review of financial statements. Uh, My concern, though, is that if you look deep at Enron, both at how they gamed California and also how they did what they did with mark-to-market accounting, etc., What they were great at was gaming the system, was looking at the rules and always finding a loophole. Uh, Every rule for them was a kind of roadmap of possibility. You know, I'm not sure rules alone are really going to fix the problem. One of the reasons I made the film was that I sensed that there was a larger cultural sickness here and that um, in believing that the ends, making money, justify whatever means possible, we are basically letting go uh, of any kind of moral tether. I read in February uh, in the Wall Street Journal noting that uh, it was commenting on retirement accounts and saying that, well, that uh, they're based, having those based heavily on a company's own stock is obviously dumb in the wake of Enron, and yet, as of a couple months ago, it was still common. I'm sure it's your hope that people are going to demand the regulators act on that. I agree, and I, and I think in a, in a fundamental way, too, you know, Enron used to have a slogan that it put at the end of its ads, was Ask Why, and that was meant to indicate that Enron always rutted against conventional wisdom. 
but I always saw it as a kind of unconscious uh, message from the master criminal to the detective, you know, urging, urging them to get on the case so the cat and mouse game would be more fun. But I think in a more serious way, at the end of the film, it is a plea for the audience to ask why, to do what Bethany McLean did, which is to ask a very simple question of Enron, how does Enron make its money? That simple question helped to bring down the fraud. So all of us, I think, have a responsibility to ask why, even if they're very simple, basic questions, and we get simple, basic answers. Because one of the reasons the title is so good, The Smartest Guys in the Room, is they bluff their way through by convincing everybody that they were so smart that they understood something better than everybody else did. You know, people would come to them and say, I'm not sure I understand. And they'd say, well, you're right. You're not smart enough to understand. You just don't get it. And people would walk away, you know, ashamed, or they would pretend they understood when they didn't. It was a smokescreen is what it was. Just historic looking back, I remember when, when Ponzi was pulling the same stunt, it was amazing to me that all the authorities lined up and said, well, we're not sure how this man's doing it, but obviously he's a genius. Correct. That's right. And that's, that's where you have to wonder, you know, where everyone's willing to suspend their disbelief because something's going on that they all like, which is that Enron's making money. And so long as Enron made money, everybody else made money. The stock went up. Everybody was happy. Who's getting hurt here? Alex Gibney, thank you so much for talking with us. I think that everyone should see your film. I'm sure many will do so after, after hearing us today. And final question before you go, what, what are you working on next? Ah, a good question. I'm working on a, a, a fiction project that I hope to get off the ground about two journalists, and I'm working on a nonfiction project that I will announce soon, but keeping under the radar so I don't have the kind of problems I had on the Enron story in terms of getting people to talk. Any handicap from you, and what do you think is going to happen next January of the trial of Skilling and Lay? I'm trying to stay out uh, of the criminal <laughs> trial altogether, but okay. I, I will only hazard a guess to say that I expect that Skilling and Lay will try to make the case as complicated as possible, and the prosecutors will try to make it as simple as possible. And we'll see who wins. Again, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much. All righty. Bye-bye. You're listening to Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and let's take a short break with some appropriate music. Underground. He's a player, and every time he 